outside the park's perimeter. And I think I've got about probably a couple of paces in and the air stood up on the back of my neck and I knew something was going to happen. And out of the bushes came a group of lads who then dragged me in the bushes. And um, that was it. It was just horrendous. You know, um, I remember the start of the attack and I remember crying for my mum. Um, and the one of them who was on top of me holding me down was saying, that's not going to do you any good now, is it? And um, yeah, I just remember my clothes being pulled off and um, just held down and just people around me, you know, quite a few. And um, just basically really there and then another. And then after that, I can't remember the in-between bit. Um, the next bit I can remember really is being the other side of the park. And this park was pretty big um, and there was a bowling green. I remember being in a part of the park and um, that was my next recollection how I got from one side to the other, I couldn't tell you. But um, I, remember, I, I can remember having to um, then do on these boys um, one at a time, one after another, and um, the masking me if I liked it, and um, how I was enjoying it. And I just, rem just remember thinking, I've got to go with this now, there's no way out, you know. I didn't know what way to turn. You know, I felt bad that I'd just given in without a fight, but at the beginning I couldn't even speak. Nothing came out of my throat to scream. I always thought, you know, if anybody ever grabbed me, you know, I'd really scream and fight, but I, I didn't. I just, and I felt so guilty with myself for not doing anything, but they were so up in my face and it was such a shock. And then I was like, what are they going to do with me now? What are they going to do with me? And I could hear what they were saying, what they were going to do with me, what they were going to do with my underwear. And, you know, and, and they even said, you know, they told me this is going to happen again to you. Um, did you enjoy it? They'd said, and um, yeah, it was shocking. But I remember being so grateful when they let me go because I didn't think they were going to. I thought then I was, something was going to happen and I was going to be shut up. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, uh, Up. And before this one even came in, Jen was already gagging to try this product, weren't you, Jen? I was literally going to purchase it before they sent it, and they sent us five wonderful flavours. So today I'm going to sample the apple flavour. And how it works is through the sense of smell. So instead of having a drink that's flavoured with all that rubbish in it, you are getting activated through the olfactory receptors in your nose and you are thinking if this flavors in the drink but it's not but it's like takes your senses to a whole new dimension and it's wild because you're not drinking disgusting fizzy drinks so this is perfect for the gym and for christmas the new chocolate orange flavor is out and if you go to the website you can check out the christmas bundles this is at Erop's website, link in the description box. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious, isn't it? Isn't it? 
Oh, watering at the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I will show you how to use a simple pod. Is you just pop it over the nozzle here, and you lift it up till it naturally stops. Oh yes, try some of that. I like that you were desperate. Try some of that. The flavour's intense as well, isn't it? Why do you think this would make the perfect Christmas gift, Jen? Because you always overindulge over Christmas and you know what it's like in the January period. You all want to lose weight. Turkey burners at the gym. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, this bottle is absolutely awesome. I'm, it's my new gym bottle, so thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Link is in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast here on the Sean Atwood channel. So today we have Donna on. Now, because of today's story and the nature of it, I have to ask you, Donna, do you waive your right to anonymity? Yes, I do, yeah. Perfect. So um, obviously the guys would have seen from the trailer some of the content that we're covering today. Now, before we get to that, if we could just go back to where you grew up, your childhood. Yeah, sure. I grew up in um, Manchester, outside of Manchester. It was called Whitefield. Uh, my dad had lived there before, my mum had lived up the road, they'd met, I had an older brother, um, quite a big gap between us, about five years, then there was me, and um, I had quite, um, an, you know, in different aspects, it was that era when money was tight, you know, we lived in a council house, my, you know, then along came my two brothers and um, eventually another brother, so I have four brothers all together. So as children, my dad was always working really hard, all the time, you know, and pressure was on, you know, and sometimes there were rows at home and being a kid, you know, you see them play now and it was quite scary, you know, I remember being frightened for my mum at times and but then I'd hear other people, you know, saying, oh, yeah, my mum and dad argue and whatever. So I guess, you know, I was quite a sensitive kid. So that was difficult. Um, we, I went to church. I went to Brownies. I went to Sunday school. I went to um, every week. And sometimes my grandma would make me go to the evening church. You know, like that was a spectacular one. <laughs> I'd sit there with a pen and pencil and just draw on the floor and um, on a little notebook and then I think my life started to change when I was about 10. Um, I would sometimes, my gran was a great ma matriarch of the family so she was always involved, she was always helping my mum and when she had my little brothers she was helping them you know, um, so she was always involved in my gran and granddad and they didn't live that far away, they lived probably about 15 minutes walk um, so she was always over and she was so loving, such a strong, powerful woman. And I realised now that's probably where I got a lot of my strength from. So, um, and I was always really helpful. I like helping my mum with my little brothers. And um, yeah, so all that was happening. And then when I was about 10, um, I can even remember it now, though I blocked it out a bit. I was playing outside my friend's house and um, my mum and dad pulled up in the car and it was a Saturday night and they went, right, get in the car now. And I'm like, why, why? Your grandma's ill, she's had, she's had a massive stroke. So I was like, oh no. So it gets in the car and, you know, they're arguing between each other 
and we get back and my grand had had this life-changing stroke and um it wasn't just life-changing to her it was life-changing to me as well because that's really where it all starts so growing up my grand and granddad would look after us while my mum and dad were at work and so there was a park across the road from them it's called Whitefield Park so I just learned to there was a little paddling pool it was a lovely park really and um, I learned to ride my bike there and my granddad would be showing me and we'd do roly-polies down the hill and but it wasn't a place that have gone near at night you know I only ever went there with my grandparents because they lived across the road so um at 10 I we know I can't remember any conversation with my mum about this but next news I'm when my grand comes out of hospital and she changed radically while she was in there I was there living at their house and um my mum said there was a conversation, but I don't remember any conversation. And, you know, I'm living at this house as much as I loved her. I didn't want to be, you know, in a bedroom with no telly. And my family at that point, um, my dad was always doing like loads of work. He was working overtime all the time. And um, so he was saving up to get out of the council house. And I was really proud of him. When I look back, I see how strong he was he made a little box and he put all his money in it and they saved him they bought this nice house with him just saving absolutely saving like mad but we did go without things so that he could get that you know and the relationship between my mum and dad was sometimes quite volatile and my mum would leave and then I, I was worried she wouldn't come back you know so if a row kicked off I would like be trying to stop them sometimes and you know it would end up with me probably causing more hassle for them you know and they'd say you know get out of the way or leave us alone or you know and then it would turn to me kind of I'd get a lot of um shouting out and whatever so at some point age 10 I go and live at my grand's and um it wasn't the best <laughs> because my gran would um tell me oh this is like your cousin's bed where he died and he died when he was nine so I was in that bedroom and she said I saw him at the bottom of the stairs after he died once so as a kid I'm like oh I can't think of anything worse than this bloody haunted house and then this guy she'd lived there for years and years with my granddad she had a piano she taught herself to play piano she was she was amazing really and um, she said the guy his wife left him so young himself and um sometimes they hear the piano play <laughs> i was like oh my god if i ever hear that piano play so you can imagine being 10 can't you in this house i'm trying to set the scene of like um and i have to laugh because otherwise i think i'd just have a breakdown of you know just thinking about all the bits that have come in but i did forget so between 10 and 14 i lived with my grand and granddad and slowly they their health obviously declined, you know, and I was kind of there and I kind of fell through the net with my parents a little bit um, because I wasn't there and they'd moved into this house. I felt a bit sad that I wasn't part of the family, you know. I felt almost that I was external from the family and they were all getting on and they were all boys and 
you know so it was hard for me to watch that and not loving my grand but not wanting to grow up in this house with two elderly people so I would hang about with my mates you know my mates were there and you know it just seemed like my family I don't know I just felt so detached from them and in the meantime I go to you know comprehensive school or high school so I'm growing up at my grand's hang out with my mates in the evenings um, and then I make my way home and um, and then yeah that's where I kind of came unstuck going home one night yeah so I would always want to go home you know I'd go home at Christmas I'd go home during the week they weren't that far away but I always felt like they were pushing me to go back and be at my grand and granddad's all the time when you was hanging outside was you with the wrong crowd were you smoking drinking no I wouldn't say so because they were all kids from the estate you know so I would walk over meet them I mean they might I'd never drunk at that point I'd never had a drink at that point um I might have like had a bit of cider or something with my friends but no we weren't smoking I think I started afterwards though but no we were just a group of kids and we didn't stay out till that late you know it was like I remember the night it happening being about maybe a bit darker than it is now and you know we'd hang about chat you know mess about in the phone box or you know boys and girls but no, we was never like bad, bad, you know, I wouldn't have said we were bad. Some of us might have had a drink, but, you know. So, so would you, yeah. Sorry, would you say you were quite focused before at school and had a good oh, yeah. friends before yeah. the event? Yeah, I loved it. I was, I loved drama. I mean, it was an upheaval going to big school from like being at my grams because I felt like my mum had forgotten about me. So when I was at school, I was coming back to older grandparents. So life was a bit, you know, not what I'd have wanted. I'd, I'd have wanted my mum and dad to be more focused on my life. But I think it was an era then where your feelings and your emotions weren't recognised. I, you know, and I can't look back and say, oh, do you know what? Um, I was so hard done to because most kids were like that. I don't think families back then um, talked about emotions or things like anxiety or depression. It just wasn't really spoken about, was it? No, it just got pushed down. You know, I'll, get, oh, I'll give you something to cry for in a minute. Or, you know, and I know that my mum and dad were under such pressure. There was no support then. There was no, you know, like, if you were out of work, you were out of work, you know. So I know that they were under pressure and they did the best they could, but there were times that I look back and I think where were you you know and he really needed you you know that I needed a bra once and I was like my grand weren't noticing these things one she'd had a stroke two she was you know getting old and I'm like how do I ask for this and you know I'm like no money and things like that so I got little jobs you know as it went along but I think that was after the oh I had a paper round you know and, I, and then I got a little bit of money like that but it was like I wasn't seen, you know. I think, I think it's hard for parents of that generation because their parents before didn't provide that emotional support either. No. So it's a knock-on effect generation uh, through the generations, but break yeah. the cycle eventually, I think. Um, yeah, and I think I found all this out. Yeah, I found all this out since. So I do have more empathy than yeah. I did maybe last year. 
Because <laughs> I was just so angry with that side of it, you know, and I was like, you know, trying to be the best I could. And, and I built up this image in my head where, where I thought I'd gone to my grounds because I was bad and that I wasn't part of the family. So but I didn't know that at the time. I just thought I'd been thrown there and thrown away and I've got to go to school now from my grand's house. You know, there's things that other people had and I felt, you know, like having to put the immersion on it. at home. It wasn't like that, you know, so I was like, I've gone back in time. And, and I think you when know, you're a child, you find it really hard to articulate how you feel. Absolutely. So you, you kind of push it all down and then yeah. it comes out later on. Exactly. And I was that kind of kid. I would put up with stuff. I was kind of happy go look at, but I wouldn't make a fuss. I always felt like I didn't want to make a fuss so I didn't get into trouble, keep my mouth shut, you know. And um, so I didn't remember this, but this came up through somebody I knew when I was about 12 um, in the park to join day with my friend who was a bit older. Some guy flashes at us. So me and my friend are like, not having that. Do you know what I mean? Let's go and report him. So we goes down the police station, <laughs> Cagney and Lisa, and we goes in and I'm like, um, I need to report it. You know, this guy, oh, right, so that's it. So he takes our names and address and I'm like, yeah, yeah, he did this and he did that. Well, couldn't have been any worse. And I forgot about this part. I blocked this part out. They come round the house, the police. Oh, it was so heavy handed. What happened? And my dad sat there, he's just come home, he's having his chin, I can remember me eating his tea, think, he's like, well, was his penis like this? Was it like that? And my dad was so embarrassed. And because he was so angry about the questions, and I was answering him as if I knew. I just wanted to please him and get rid of him. Oh, when they went, I got, don't ever have a police car outside my house again. Don't bring the police round here. And honestly, that is what was rammed into my head. And they went to my friends, mum and dad, very heavy-handedly come out with all this stuff. And you, I really felt like I was in trouble after they left, not just with the police, but with my dad, you know. Yeah, that reflected how you acted after the incident, the upcoming incident, when you were 14. Yeah. yeah. So can we talk 13. about being at 13 leading up to that night? So I would hang out with my mates, you know. Um, as I got to big school, I met a group of different girls from school like you do and then you've still got your mates on the estate so I would go in between them and I met this girl um probably about six months beforehand or maybe a year and we hung out and she was a bit naughty and a quite light so you know and she you know like have a smoke and you don't smoke properly and you've got to drag it back and um, but she did a few things which now looking back were really questionable and, and really naughty, not honestly, I'm not trying to be like Julie Andrews, but I wouldn't have done it myself, you know, I was like, wow, she's a bit outrageous, but I kind of found it funny, you know, so anyway, and then she disappeared off the scene, I saw her at school and we was like really close for a bit and then I went back to hanging about at the top of the road across from the precinct and Whitefield was pretty safe i just said you know you you know it wasn't that big anyway this night i remember seeing some older lads turn up and we was all we used to call it the benches so we're all hanging around this couple of benches on the street corner and and i remember thinking i've never seen them before they look a bit 
different, you know, older. You could tell, you know, when you go to school and you go in the first year, I think they call it year seven now, and the year 11s look like actual adults. <laughs> and you feel like a kid and some of them have got beards and moustaches, like, <laughs> and the years upwards. They were like that. They looked older than us. So it was a bit strange that they turned up on the scene and I kind of clocked them. And um, they spoke to a girl that I was with and then she came back and I went, who's that? But there were lads there as well. And she went, oh, they were just asking me if I wanted to go for a walk with them. And I went, oh, wow. I said, that was strange. And she went, no, I'm not going. Anyway, they they petered off and there was probably about three of these lads and, you know, the red stuck in my head. I was kind of looking at them thinking, never seen them round here. And then my memory is kind of bits and pieces from there, really. It's, um, I made my way from them, said, you know, see you to me mates. And I went across the precinct and there used to be two ways to me grand, so or maybe three, but two of them were very dark. So one was up the side of a supermarket and one was through um, a precinct and round the back or the other one was past the park and the bus station and it was lit up there. So that was a bit lighter and it, it, more traffic and more people about. So I would make my way down there. So I'm making my way down there and um, the the park entrance had two entrances and the park entrance was at the top here and um, I spotted one of the guys from earlier and um, it's still very grainy my memory but the clearest thing he, I remember him saying is do you want me to walk you through the park because there's some strangers down there some weirdos or strangers and I was like couldn't see anybody but stupidly walked inside the park's perimeter and I think I've got about probably a couple of paces in and the air stood up on the back of my neck and I knew something was going to happen and out of the bushes came a group of lads who then dragged me in the bushes and um, that was it, it was just horrendous. You know, um, I remember the start of the attack and I remember crying for my mum and the one of them who was on top of me holding me down was saying that's not going to do you any good now is it and um, yeah I just remember my clothes being pulled off and um, just held down and just people around me you know quite a few and um, just basically really there and then another and then after that, can't remember the in-between bit. Um, the next bit I can remember really is being the other side of the park. And this park was pretty big. Um, and there was a bowling green. And I remember being in a part of the park. And um, that was my next recollection, how I got from one side to the other. I couldn't tell you. But... Um, I, remember, um, I can remember having to um, then do sex on these boys um, one at a time, one after another, and um, them asking me if I liked it and um, how I was enjoying it. And I just, rem just remember thinking, I've got to go with this now. There's no way out. You know, I didn't know what way to turn. 
you know, I felt bad that I'd just given in without a fight. But at the beginning, I couldn't even speak. Nothing came out of my throat to scream. I always thought, you know, if anybody ever grabbed me, you know, I'd really scream and fight, but I, I didn't. I just, and I felt so guilty with myself for not doing anything. But they were so up in my face and it was such a shock. And then I was like, what are they going to do with me now? What are they going to do with me? And I could hear what they were saying, what they were going to do with me, what they were going to do with my underwear. And, you know, and, and they even said, you know, they told me this is going to happen again to you. Um, did you enjoy it? They'd said, and um, yeah, it was shocking. But I remember being so grateful when they let me go because I didn't think they were going to. I thought then I was, something was going to happen and I was going to be shut up. So I remember just feeling excitement, intense excitement inside me um, that I was going to get hold of it. But in following up, I wished a lot of times that they hadn't. Well, just, I wish that they'd have just got rid of me, to be honest, because that was the start then of um, 40 years of um, hell, really, in my own head. Mm. How many boys were there? I would say seven or eight. Mm. I'm so sorry. You so were Honestly, you were hearing this today, like, thank you. That sounds like the worst, most ex horrific, traumatic experience any woman or, or man can go through, especially at such a young age. I think I really did detach myself from my body. Um, and it carried on for a long time afterwards. I don't remember entering my grand's house. I don't know who opened the door. I don't remember. I remember washing myself, trying to wash myself. But I didn't have any hot water because she didn't have the frigging immersion on, did she? Um, so, like, I'm like, don't remember the days afterwards. Don't you went into survival mode and just kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, my life changed that night like that. I was Donna, and then I was from then on. So did these? Did you see these boys again? Yeah, I got um, I got dragged. The second one was worse. I got. I remember going across the precinct. I can't tell you any time length of time in between. Um, I went through the precinct, which had two little alleyways, and then it came out into a car park, and there was a car at the top, and my heart sank, and there was, I think, three, four of them in there, and the car opened, and um, I was just dragged in. I, I was taken to a place called Springwater Park, and halfway down, you could drive your car, and then they pulled in, and then there were very violent, I was violently raised by all of them, yeah, and to do things well, they were doing things to me. Did you um, not feel like you could speak to anybody? Nobody. I couldn't say anything to my ground. She had a stroke. I thought this will literally kill them. And I made the decision that night after the park, somewhere in my head, I don't remember the time or it being like, oh, I've decided this. I was going to have to keep my mouth shut. My dad, I guess now, looking back, he would be labelled as having bipolar. 
was yeah. very high and very very highs and very low lows so you would go in you'd have music banging away you know and then the next day the curtains would be shut and it was depression day you know black dog day and i thought he will literally kill them he will, he will kill them and then it'll cause a load of trouble and my dad will get and this is the scenario that i had in my head and the minute i decided to keep it quiet was the day that i had to keep it quiet forever from there don't remember getting home. Don't remember much after that. Just remember the laughing evil faces. And um, I ended up at a party in one of the houses, the one that had asked me, told me to go in the park and walk through because he was going to look after me. I remember being at his house and some girls opening the door while I was having sex with people in there. And I think it was one of his sisters and then they shut the door and told her to, and um i was she just said who is that in there and i just thought how have i ended up like this i remember another time at one of the houses as well another and those then you know i felt almost like i was letting it happen and i couldn't say anything at that point it was all my fault i couldn't say when um how them two scenarios started i don't know i felt like i was drunk at the time because i was really um on them two occasions at different houses because i felt like i couldn't stop anything i felt different it, it felt surreal almost what in slow motion looking back on them two occasions the other two were nothing so there was because there was three attacks well four in total was there four in total that i can remember yeah oh and another one yeah was behind um some shops when my mum used to work during the day with two of them they pulled me behind a shop and made me perform attacks on them there um and then the final time which i remember walking along um a road in whitefield and um, it was daytime and I saw the car coming along the road and I turned round and I thought, oh my God. So I started running and I ran to a friend's house and I was banging on the door and there were two sisters. One of them was the one that had been in the park with me when we'd seen the flasher. And um, I was banging and they were coming up and in the, through the gate, up the pathway behind me, she opened the door and shut it and they were hammering on the doors. She didn't see all the panic and I was like, Oh my God, Suzanne, thank God for that. And she went to the door because they were still banging and they said, we want her, we want her. And I remember Suzanne going, you can bugger off. And then coming in and having a go at me and saying, who were that, who were that banging on my mum's door? And I was like, oh, I don't know him, I don't know him. Oh, and I was just so relieved. And that was the very last time they touched me. So would you say that scared them? I that... guess it did because people were involved then. Before then, it was like I was, nothing was being seen. No, you know, in their minds, they probably thought I was too frightened. And I was too frightened. I was too frightened what had happened to me. You know, they told me the first time you've got to shut your mouth and, and this will happen again. And I was thought, oh, no, it won't happen again. But I was, it did. It did. Were they, were they not known on in the area for? Not on mine, my area. There'd been a big, like, kind of area built called Hillock and it was like a continuation of Whitefield. It had been added on and they was from that estate, yeah.
that is so worrying that there were eight men well, yeah. could have been more and do you know what day at night doing that because yeah it could have been anybody the, yeah it could have been anybody. The victim or pardon sorry do you think you were the only victim i don't think so no no and do you know what i found because i listened to a lot of podcasts and i found that um the year before because it was a podcast about um films that have come out that have created a sensation there's a film called Porkies had come out the year before and it was quite big in America. And they said it caused people to do And then that came out the year before here. And I feel like films like that were kind of like instigating lads to think that was right to do that to women. It oh, it's speed, doesn't it? Like Clockwork yeah. Orange, yeah. quite a, a famous uh, film. Yeah, racing. That, and that, that spurred on that kind of mindset as well. Yeah. And they get together. They were like a pack of animals. They really were a pack of animals. And I'd never seen them before. Any of them, never seen them before. I'm and surprised I, that all all of them boys thought that that was okay. Yeah, I am. You know, it, they were it, like gang mentality, though. It yeah. was gang mentality. And they were laughing. And, you know, I even saw a couple of them afterwards and they laughed at me in the street. Thinking back, they laughed at me in the street. I remember a couple of them being younger and thinking, what are you doing with these? What where is your mindset? So I just thought once, yeah, bad enough, right? Then other times, my fault. Because to me, my whole life, I've looked back on it thinking, I can't tell anybody about what's really happened because it's not your fault. It's not it was, your fault. It was the common yeah. denominator, I used to think. Yeah, you, had no control. you had no You know, when I know now through listening to your podcast and Sean's. I've learned so much more than I could ever have done from a counsellor because what I've learned is whether you're criminal or whatever, if you've got a background with abuse in it, you will always end up the same way. You'll yeah. end up in a life that just carries on. It's like throwing a stone and the ripples come off. You know, you meet people that are not suited to you, have no self-worth, going around vulnerable. People just see it. People in that mindset, not everybody, see you as being a victim and they will jump on it some people unfortunately it is a common theme um you know among victims yeah um, to to then go on to have as uh, you know abusive relationships low self-worth and unfortunately the, you know that the, the prison sentences on crimes of that nature are so pathetic less than one percent Less than one percent, you know. You, what, can you imagine me in the eighties going down the police station and taking on all them lot? You know, but that wasn't the worst of it because the worst came afterwards. What yeah. they've done to me now means nothing. But what they did to me means nothing because I didn't want it, so it wasn't an act in my mind. They forced me, wasn't consensual, but the the shit I got afterwards off girls off people at school for the rest of my life I was labeled they went and told people that I wanted this like I was some kind of nymphomaniac right that went down a path never had sex never had a proper boyfriend probably kissed somebody a couple of times you know a couple of lads in my life as if I thought on some filthy dirty rainy night I know what I'll do I'll go down and take men in a park and that's what they said, and people believed it. 
and I just wanted to knock. Hey, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays, and it is the season of giving. Get the perfect gift for that special somebody, yourself or both. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarized shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an unrivaled product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn. Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And Jen's blonde locks aren't getting tangled. In the tangle-free nose piece, so I can put it up in my hair like this. <laughs> no catching. With an extensive array of styles and colours, you're bound to find the perfect pair of Shady Rays sunglasses. And if you're into winter sports, their quick-swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low light environments. That's not all. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out a very merry deal for the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code SHAUN for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. That's ShadyRays.com, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off or two more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Link in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Cheers. What it's to knock people on the head and say when you word these things about me, did you actually think, knowing me beforehand, did you think I was like that? I remember a group of girls when I had to go back to school because this seemed to happen in the summer holidays. Do you know what I had to do to find out when it happened? I had to, I can't go to 80s bloody music festivals. I can't go and I don't know why. I just thought it's because the music was shite. But when I heard like baggy trousers, uh, Welcome to the House of Fun. Songs around that time. Honestly, I'd feel like I wanted to puke. It was yeah. like, oh, I, it's bringing Bring so much. Back. Yeah, and that's how I found how, what time of year it was. And I took bloody charts because there were some songs that were like aversions. I just wanted to be sick when I heard them. And that's what it was. It was related to that time in my life. Of course. So I never you know, thought that my life would... I was brought up in a male environment. You know, I never was like... I didn't have a sister to be outgoing with. I didn't... You know, my mum was very much for me brothers, you know. It was all football, so I wasn't some provocative young teenager. I was quite a sensitive. I was even playing with me. Bloody dolls at home still. I was but it, quite... doesn't, it doesn't matter even if you was provocative. It still doesn't excuse their behaviour. Because if you don't give consent, it doesn't... No. It no, doesn't. Um, totally agree. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you can't, you can't put, you can't make excuses for their behaviour at all because no. it's 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 disgusting, you know. Um, and how old were they? Do you have Do you have any idea of their age? Yeah, I think about three and four, three, four, five years older at the most. I would say, yeah, yeah. So at sixteen, sort of onwards, up to um, maybe twenty. Uh, don't think as old as that. Maybe 18, 17, 18, something like that. It is. Absolutely. My life changed. It just changed so radically. I was just labelled from there on in. And I didn't know these rumours were circulating in the summer holidays. You know, like they do when you think, I'm dreading going back to school as it is. And I'm, you know, and I'm 
like frightened, you know, and I'm trying to have to go in there and pretend nothing's happened. But all the while, you feel everybody's looking at you anyway, without looking at you and saying, well, yeah, she looks like she might have been last night. That's how I felt. I felt like I had a sign on my head because I felt so, so, crumb, so crushed, you know. So in these summer holidays, I'm going through the precinct one night. One evening, it wasn't night, it was probably about, it was light, it was summer, probably about half six, seven, and there's a gang of girls, and there's me and my mate, and we're walking along, and, um, oh, you, like me, so I'm looking at that, one word with you, you've been with such and such body's boyfriend, uh, we've heard all about you and what you do, so I'm like, oh, no, I've had it now. And was like, I'm gonna whatever to me. I can't remember what she said she was gonna do, one of them. And then this other one who had been at my primary school, I couldn't quite believe it, said, When she's finished with you, I'm gonna have you. And then I'm like, Oh no, I feel sick to the pit of my stomach. And I'm thinking, What am I gonna do now? And the main one, just got been off, said to me, Get down on your knees and pray, and we won't beat you up. And stupid thick me got down on my knees and she just smacked me in my jaw. And because I was like that, I was on waist length with her and I honestly thought, I thought, oh my God, I think she's broke my jaw. But then I had to get up and I had to fight. I had to fight because I was a slag. So I'm now thinking if I don't, full on have this fight with this girl the other one's gonna have a go and then the other one's gonna have a go i was lucky that they didn't all start really at once so i'm then fighting and we're all over the precinct and um yeah i guess i was a bit lucky because my dad used to teach me and my brother's boxing when i was younger so <laughs> yeah um this guy stops in a car and i've got the better of her and he's telling me to get off her and i'm like i can't believe this can't believe this i don't want to have to do this but i've got no other way out so yeah um i said to the other one so she went oh no leave it leave it and the other one went yeah leave it and I, you know and they went off and that was like the course of the path then and then i was at my mum and dad's maybe a week or two later and the doorbells go in and um I'm like looking and I can see like girls outside the windows and my dad was so house proud and um, I can see they're pulling the numbers off the door and they're banging the door and they're banging on the windows and he opened it and it's the friend I'd hung around with six months earlier, the one that was a bit naughty and uh, she said you're in effing slime and I, I just thought she went better get out of the house now because you're going to get leathered and I was like oh, oh here we go again. So um, there's four of them. I'm thinking the windows. I don't want me down to windows getting put through. So they take me across to Elm's playing fields, which is right across from my mum and dad's house. A girl I knew held the dog. And then I said, look, I really don't want to fight. And they said, um, but you're a sick, so you're going to have to. And I said, look, you know, you've been with this lad. You've been with that lad. So the name in them, the name in them to me. And I said, look, please, I don't want to. And they said, look, if you get it, you've got to whip back. And um, I can remember that as clear as day. And then they just all beat me up. Mm. 
and no. it just went back with my ears were black inside and my head just couldn't even touch me hair and I just ran off to my grams and um, about half past six that night banging on my grams door I'm like oh Jesus it's my dad um, where is she? So we come upstairs, he grabbed me, dragged me out of the house. How dare you bring your friends, wrecking my house, blah, blah, blah. You're coming to the police station. He sat me down in the police station and the police are saying, well, what happened? And I'm saying, I'm not saying. I can't say anything. I, I couldn't say anything. I didn't want to open up any of this. I just wanted to push it down and then it would disappear. And even when it's out of hand and it's getting worse, and worse and worse I, I i still keep my mouth shut and that i believe was from that first time don't bring the police around the house don't you know keep your mouth shut you sit and i just felt that was playing in my head all the time i had nobody to turn to not a maid nothing it was just all in my head and i would get from then on in um labeled a slag and all the rest of it at school that was impending so I went back, so it was the third year. So, um, oh, my name was, wasn't was mud, it was shit all over the school. She's done this. And then whispers are add on with this many lads and she loves it and she does that. And from, I would get lads coming on to me regularly and after, keep them away from me. I think it's quite hard to process all that is going on as well like you've gone from being a victim to suddenly being blamed for it and it's yeah. for you in your head must have been swarming at the time thinking i don't understand how all this has happened no and why has it happened to me couldn't believe that no i don't yeah. know if you mentioned donna who some of the girls were um so i don't know if you want to say it's some of them were partners of the attackers that's what they were saying to me such you've been with such body's boyfriend yeah and these were girls who were like 13 they were in relation i weren't even in relationships they were 13 and had for what they thought was serious relationships going on and i'm 13 and never had a boyfriend but i was being labeled this absolute you know trash piece of shit and people were believing her I remember a group of girls and going back to school and one of them saying, uh, oh, Donna, can we have a word? And I'm thinking, here we go now. Um, yeah, what is that? Can't believe what people are saying about you. And I'm like, right, um, is it true? And I'll laugh and no, it isn't true. Well, we've heard it is. And I'm just all the time not giving an answer, but just saying it's not true, it's not true. The girl would regularly threaten me at school. She went on, the one that had been my friend, the one that beat me up, she went on to uh, spread all the rumours all up. So everybody, none of them lads went to my school, they went to another school. Everybody knew in my school. Older kids, older lads. She's a she'll go with you, she'll do this with you, she'll do. And I just wanted to die inside. Yeah, so I, I go back to school and... Um, I then realised that um, people are starting to hear about it and it's like going round like Chinese whispers and people are asking me things about it and I'm just going, I don't know what you mean. No, 
I don't know what you mean. And it would get, um, you know, I would get the girl that I'd been friends with um, saying she was going to beat me up, spreading, obviously, all these stories around. Um, and then everybody kind of knows and, you know, you just don't want to be there. I couldn't function anyway. I honestly immediately felt like brain fog came in and I just couldn't focus. I couldn't focus in my class. I couldn't focus at home. If I hadn't had music and and books um, at my grand's, because then were my coping mechanisms and I would read my books out loud to myself so that I would block out thoughts because that's the only way I could deal with it. And then I started to drink. I um, started to like, my mum and dad, didn't drink. I think they had a little quarter bottle of navy rum or something. Got that. Got on the drink, and then I started to um, drink my grand's QC. It was that bad. Feel like a sherry at Christmas. <laughs> I was like having a drink of that, and the feeling was at the time, oh my god, this is so nice. I I'm not thinking about that terrible thing. I'm not that person. It's all right, and I just wanted to block with drinking drinks then um so I almost felt like I became a self-fulfilling prophecy you know that's what you think of me and that's what I am you know and I just felt totally worthless um so I get called into um see this teacher at school this deputy ed he was like um he had like a vicar's collar on but he looked like Christopher Lee or um do you know, like Ray Redden, looks a bit like he was out of an horror film, to be honest. Very unusual. And um, he said to me, I believe, Donna, you've been going to sex in your lunchtime. And I just thought, no, I've just been going and getting an am muffin down the shop with me, mate. Also, and then after that, he would have me in his office and um, I would get slapped across the face by him for absolutely nothing. And then he got my mum and dad up to school and I think he said, what does your mum and dad think of you? And at that point, that's how I felt. I said, oh, I don't know, because I haven't got a mum and dad, I've been adopted. Because uh, that's how I felt. I just felt totally dropped out. And um, yeah, so he brought my mum and dad up. So there was a nightmare then at school, like, and said, you know, she's been lying and stuff. But nobody was noticing what was going on for me. So for him to ask if I was going to these sex parties during my lunchtime break, he must have heard something about me because they were rife. It was like half of the town at least knew these things about me. And I'm so desperately trying to keep my brothers from hearing about them and, and protect my family. The worst thought was my family hearing these things about me. And looking at me and thinking, that's our Donna. That is what she's capable of. That's I really remember, weird that a headmaster said that was to you. And deputy you Ed, yeah. Deputy, deputy Ed. Was, Ed. Yeah. yeah. But referring to it. I'm, I'm more shocked at the, the slapping as well. Oh, as well, of course. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, over it, nothing in this why, office. So why would he slap you? Just, I it? believe you've done this or I believe you've done that. Yeah, get slapped across the face. Wow. Unreal. Mm -hmm. And I just wow. would walk 
school. I would go home. I would go back to my grounds. I'd get on the bus. I didn't want to be at school. It was just a place of just horror, really, just horrible things being said about me, and especially by older people. And, you know, if I went anywhere, this tag, this name would follow me. Did your mum and dad not hear these rumours? They never said anything to me about them, no. But I'm I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did, you know. And your brothers, they, they didn't hear anything? No. Never no. said anything to me if they did, you know. So I was like, just, I was just becoming this thing that people were saying about me in my head. I remember just being um, um, in bed at my grand's at night and thinking, wow, I so much wanted, I, I really loved drama and I loved acting and I loved um, singing and, you know, I was just really excitable at school and I was so lucky that I did have a good group of friends around me that I still got now, you know, that even though I was being called these names, that still stood by me, you know. Um, and, you know, one of my friends, who's still my best friend now, he said, um, I just remember once, Donna, being told this horrendous thing about you, that you went with about 12 or 11 or 12 lads, and it wasn't that park, it was another park. And I just shrugged it off because I thought, that's not Donna, she wouldn't do something like that. But, you know, they were like, I'm going to, I just used to think I'm going to be left with nobody. I'm going to be left with nobody to help me in. You know, it, it just constantly felt like a battle every day. So with these vicious rumours flying around, mm. did you even focus to finish school? No, I came out with a couple of, I think I got um, an O-level. I did about two or three exams out of a lot of them. I couldn't, you know, I'd loved English. I'd loved, you know, all my subjects. And my life was so different from being a primary school and you do change and you do grow. But once that thing happened, I, my head was gone. My brain had gone. Couldn't. I was just like, it was like it changed my whole future. And now I was going down another path and there was nothing I could do. And I remember lying in bed thinking, well, that's at the end of me. I can't ever be what I wanted to be. You know, even if I wanted to do go to drama school or something happened as soon as people found out about me. And that's what I would think as soon as people find out about me, I've had it. You know, I would meet lads as I got older and people would tell them I was a slag, so the relationship was over. And did that happen many times? Yeah, if yeah, yeah. If I really liked somebody, it was, you know, sad. Um, or there'd be girls when I were older that I'd say, oh, she's a right slag. It was just constant, constant. There was nothing I could do to change or tell somebody because I felt too many things had happened and it impacted my life radically. So then my grand and granddad dies when I'm 14. So that's it. I'm um, thrust back into the family, you know, so I'm moving back into the family now and I don't fit there. I've been away, I've grown, things have happened to me and me and my dad are arguing all the time, all the time. You know, you've got to stay in, you're going out, climbing out of windows to go out, you know, just wanting to be naughty all the time, you know, and misbehave. And I had to play up to this thing. And, you know, I'd have physical fights with my dad while he was trying to lock me in the bedroom. And 
I remember him saying, no wonder your gran and granddad died because you probably did it. And I actually thought, yeah, I probably did with my behaviour afterwards of being um, really uncontrollable after getting myself into really bad situations with people. Um, you so know, when, did you, when did you feel like you should have, you wanted to move away? Um, well, I always felt like I wanted to move away from Whitefield, but I was always scared. I could never see myself doing it. Um, so I um, met my first proper boyfriend and got engaged to him. And um, I remember what would happen was at the end of the relationship, because I would be so um, needy and desperate, um, that I would explain what had, what had happened to me as if like to seal it for them so they didn't have to be with me like, oh, no wonder it's basically down the lines of that's happened because I'm a worthless piece of shit. So I was expecting it. So don't worry about feeling bad about getting rid of me because I would have got rid of me. My own self-dialogue to myself was the worst dialogue you can imagine. I would want to take my life. A couple of times I started getting into the cutting of myself. I um, took a load of my dad's tablets once. Um, just in, really, just very self-destructive. Terribly self-destructive. On a, just a slipping slide. And everybody I met, um, I was expecting them to love me so that I would find myself, but I didn't realise that I was so damaged and that every relationship I had therefore after that was with somebody who was themselves damaged as well because I believe you just attract what you are, you know, in different ways. They, they call it trauma bonding, I believe, so... Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot and, of people who've endured trauma go on to like we mentioned earlier, go on to be in abusive relationships of low self-worth. Yeah, yeah, all them things, you know. I was, um, you know, so the guy I was engaged to, that fell apart. But I never felt worthy enough to be with anyone anyway, so I would always be, like, self-sabotaging and ruining things. So I take full responsibility for that, you know that was my fault and that to me at the time you know it, it was going to happen anyway so the quicker it happened the better so you know next you know, and did next. you tell your partner at the time your partners at the time what had gone on to you when you were younger always at the end when it was ending and what was their reactions it was almost like i never always kept it down i never told them the extent of how many was there um and it was almost like it was, well, yeah, I better get away quick, haven't I, yeah, because you've basically had it really, haven't you, you know? Not all of them, but some of them, yeah. I felt like I was self-destructing by putting the final seal on it, and you wouldn't want to be with me anyway, because even though I wanted them relationships to carry on, I was finishing it for them and adding the last line, like, yeah, quit, like it, you know, I am, I am disgusting. You know, I've been abused and um, I'm damaged goods. But I you haven't had time to heal, really. So you you probably no. were still processing everything for a long, long time. Yeah, and you know, and I look back and I see that um, I was just 
I didn't tell anybody, so all this stuff was building up inside me. I didn't realise it was going to have to come out one day. I never, ever thought I would tell a soul. And I'm so grateful now that I have because I can't tell you the weight that came off my shoulders. So, yeah, my life, I, I met um, my son's dad and, um, you know, we were we were great at the beginning. And I think, you know, we had a, you know, we had a wonderful son together and I ended up living at Chester Cathedral where he worked there um, in the choir and all the rest of it. And um, it felt quite good to be away from Whitefield. But um, then again, you know, I became insecure. My mum and dad had just moved down here where I am now in Devon and um, I was missing them and I had this new baby and we started to um, argue. I started to feel insecure. I was at this place that I didn't feel that I should be at the cathedral living within the grounds and this nice life and I felt looking back it was almost like I had to sabotage that and I became really needy and clingy and yet at the same time pushing him away <clears throat> and so that that relationship ended and from there the house came with the job and I ended up back um, in not far from Whitefield in a homeless hostel with my little boy so yes yeah, so. what was that like there do you know it was awful at the time and um, but my mum were down mum and dad were down here I didn't want to come down to Devon and I was heartbroken, the relationship had ended and I would have done absolutely anything to keep it going. But, you know, we both had issues, me more than anything. And um, I was just, just destructive. And uh, so it was difficult, but it was almost like, I think I was there uh, four months, but I became almost like institutionalized a bit. I, I quite got on with everybody. And it was quite comforting with all these women and kids, you know, and I quite, I didn't mind it after a bit. And then I was frightened of being on my own and getting my own flat. And then my mum and dad said, I've been in my own flat for about a year. And they said to me, um, why don't you move down here? And I thought, why don't I? I was struggling, still had my little boy. Everything had changed in Whitefield. People had gone and people were still around. And I thought, who's going to help me look after Mikey, you know, while I go to work and things. So we moved down here when I was about, um, I think it was about 27, 28, and my son was about, okay. at the time, it felt good, you know. I felt like, um, wow, I've moved somewhere. I could almost invent myself again if I wanted to. You know, I, um, but what I didn't realise that, my head was still with me with all the negativity in it you know so i'd moved halfway across the country but i still had these triggering thoughts feelings after my marriage broke down i thought i can't i can't meet anybody again and go through that much pain again so i stayed on my own for about the next five six years yeah five years and brought mikey up my mum and dad lived down the road um, and then my dad died, he got cancer and died pretty quick. And I met Ellie's dad. So Ellie's dad was from here, down here. And um, again, like a trauma bond, you know, I wanted to help him. He was struggling. He was, 
you know, things were going wrong. We, we got into arguments. Um, he had a big back operation, started drinking. And, um, yeah, I just wanted it to be so different, but became, yeah, a bit toxic. And although I loved him, you know, it was... I was to blame as well for being so insecure and not loving myself, you know, but not realising this had gone, this thread had gone through all my relationships. And I just thought, I can't be with anybody because obviously I'm not stable. I'm, I'm not mentally sane or, you know, I'm not fit to be with anybody, but never ever putting it down to what happened to me. Because and that's, that's how you were feeling internally, constantly? Yeah, constantly. Constantly, every job I'd done, I couldn't focus it. You know, I'd be there for so long, then I, you know, but I was never, I couldn't focus in my life. I couldn't even put together what had happened to me was having an impact. I just thought it was all my fault from the beginning, and this is what I was getting, what I deserved. Do you feel like you you met the same person in a different body each time? Yeah, slightly yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. you're attracted to the same type of character. Um, yeah. 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 And expecting it's like, you know, that it was who said it now, you know. Um, Einstein, are you on about, he says the definition of insanity is. Yeah, doing the same, same thing, thing over and over again and expecting yeah. a different ending. Outcome, you know, yeah, 100%. All the time, you know, and still I'm not telling anybody or talking about this. And then um, Ellie's dad said, I think you need to go and see somebody. And so I went to the doctors and, um, yeah, I uh, got to see a counsellor and um, told them that I'd been... I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade mentor the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with Myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive In Conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. When I was younger and played it down again, said it was just three or four people who'd done it to me. And um, I was struggling with life, you know, and uh, absolutely no help. Um, just put me on tablets, antidepressants. And they just, love you, really, don't they? They're just, just crack on. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they don't just numb that feeling, they numb other feelings. Yeah, everything. They numb the natural excitement and, yeah. you know, your being and, you know, we're not wanting to exercise and, you know, and that, them are the good things that you do need when that's going on. You know, you need something else. And, and so I was never putting all these chains of events together and it was just all the time, problem after problem, you know, and I'd say, oh, she's done it again, Donna's done it again. How can I make so many mistakes? But it was continual. So how did it feel opening up for the first time with a therapist? Um, well, it felt all right, but he didn't listen. It felt like he was just um, asked me what I didn't like about it, and I said, I don't like being looked at. And I think that goes back to what happened in front of other people during you know, that there were people stood looking and watching and I'd never liked people looking at me. And um, he just said, like, I've got pink furry ears. And I just thought, what the fuck? And he said, you know, I just didn't understand his concept of that. And I just thought, why am I bothering coming down here? Sorry, pink but, furry ears, is that referring yeah. to crazy? I don't know, that's what he said. Didn't, don't know, do not know to this day. And I was going down the doctors and feeling ill. My stomach was bad all the time. You know, like I felt so tired. I felt drained. Um, but these were never all put together. And I was never given any help at the doctors. Or, you know, maybe it took for me to say it out loud what had happened to me. But, you know, I was just continually my stomach, you know, when I was all anxiety. Oh, massively. My stomach was continually churning. And I do believe you feel everything in your stomach. You know, you feel excitement. But I had, I could almost feel like I was running on cortisol, just constantly pumping through my body. And it was exhausting, exhausting each day of my life. But, do you know, when my son was born and my daughter, it felt my whole life took on a meaning then, absolute meaning. And without them, I wouldn't be here because of a purpose, you know? I was going to ask you that, actually, you know, when you had your children, did you feel like you had something to kind of guide you and give you a bit more structure in oh, life? Yeah. Um, protect, I had to protect yeah. you at all costs. Yeah, because it changes I, you as a, a woman for the better, I think. Wow. Personally, it did for me anyway. And I'm yeah. sure, Jen, you feel the same way. More recently joined the club, yeah. but yeah. 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 yeah, just so Great. so strength, so much strength, and just on the kind of love I felt I'd never felt before, which was unconditional yeah. love. You know, so, and you know, it was just like I need to protect these. And honestly, you know, if I got somebody knocking at the door, if they'd done something, I'm like, get lost. <laughs> you know, I remember if like I saw any abuse going on, I would flip and snap, yeah. and I, it didn't care whether it was ten men. I remember being with Mikey's dad and me and him and a couple of other people and there was some kind of like argument going on in a flat across the road, like a domestic, a, a, you know, dispute. And I'd heard it go on for so many times. And that night I could see him smashing up the sink in the bathroom and he's got her and I went, right, that's it. Straight across the flat, in the flat, leave her alone. And that's what I would do. Not, no, no thinking. I'd have to go in and help somebody. And it was like, when I look back, it's like what I should, I didn't save myself, but I could save everybody else. 
I couldn't see anybody. If I was driving and there was a fight going on, I'd pull over as well, you know, and get in the thick of it. Dangerous, but I couldn't see anybody else be hurt. I was like, I cannot let this happen to anyone, but I could let it happen to myself. I didn't put it together, you know? So while I'm helping everybody else, I'm like being horrible to myself, you know, talking to myself, like you are slag, you are dirty, you are this, you are that. And I wasn't any of it, you know? That's the lioness in you though, protecting. Oh yeah, terrible. I, um, you know, I've seen like people, I went to Manchester last year and I went in this pub I'd not been in for ages and ages. And we went in at last orders, me and my mate. And there's a girl in the doorway and a clock on. And there's like a to and fro in between this man and this woman and my mates at the bar and I'm watching them in the doorway. And I could see her pulling away from him. So I went outside and she's got no shoes on her feet. And he's like saying to her, come on, come on. And she's like, no, I don't want to go with you. And I'm like, what, what's going on? Like, I have to get involved. And she said, um, I said, do you want to go with him? And she said, she said, no, no. And he's like, you're coming home with me. I'm walking around. You mind your own business. And I thought, this is wrong, this. So I said, she doesn't want to go with you. He said, mind your own business. And I said, what are you going to do? Because this is what I'm like. So he said, I'm going back inside. I'm going to get the barman. So he come out then and he went, oh, you keep butting your mouth. I went, you are? I said, she doesn't want to go with him. And she did, they didn't look right. She looked more than drunk. She was wobbling all over. And he was so adamant that he was going to take her home that I knew there was something wrong instinctively. And so I couldn't do anything. I said, I'm going to ring the police in a minute. Anyway, my friend's in the pub, so I went back in. And then the guy said, you're a cunt, you are. The one from behind the bar. He said, you keep your nose. She's been sat here wanting to kill her husband all night, and now I'm. She wanted him to go home with her 10 minutes early. Now she's changed her mind. I said, well, that's up to her, isn't it, if she does? And I was so disgusted that nobody else in that pub was bothered. It was like it was the norm. I couldn't bear to watch it go on. I was so angry. Good on you. You know, and I got called all the names under the sun. There were probably about 10 people in the pub. It weren't even. But I thought, is nobody bothered about this? Not bothered? No. Shocked. You know, but that has been the thing in me. I can't bear to see anybody be hurt or armed or in a, you know, a dangerous position. No. So next story we've got coming up is your incredibly cruel partner. Yeah. I guess I've got to be careful what I say about him. Definite narcissist. He's the reason why all this came to the forefront. So um, uh, I met him on Facebook. Um, I met him on Facebook. I knew him from Whitefield. So this is all how it all come out. And I've got him to thank for all this because, um, yeah, I let him into my life. Met him on Facebook, chatting to him, knowing from years ago that he's from Whitefield. So we're getting on quite well, you know. He's, he's just chatting to me normally. I had, he added me as a friend and then he's sending me little messages and I'm like, oh, you know, like chatting away and then do you fancy a phone call? Do you, you know, do you feel like there's any attraction? So we talked for about four, five, six weeks and then we 
had a chat on the phone and we got on so well. We were laughing and, you know, it was like meeting, you know, when you get the accent and you think, oh, it's like home from home, you know, and you're getting along with somebody and um, we hit it off. And, and then he said, do you fancy coming up, flying up and coming up north? Are you coming up anytime soon? I said, well, not really. I said, but yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and then I thought, how do I tell him? people see me with him and I go up there I've got that label haven't I and he knows a lot of people and that'll be the, the end of the relationship still thinking this way and I'm 50 you know this was three years ago so I'm 50 51 and I'm like um do I tell him and then I thought yeah I'll tell him I'll just blurt out what's happened to me in a phone call and um it'll probably end and that'll be us finished, you know, it'll never take off. So I told him and looking back, he never really said anything. He asked who the people were and he said, oh yes, I know him, I know him, I know her, I know, you know, her as well. And I'm thinking, oh God, so that's it. And, and he said, no, I still want to see you. So I, we started a kind of relationship and I would fly up every other weekend. And then he started to come down here and then COVID came in and he came to stay. We didn't plan it, but he came down and he ended up staying. And to be quite honest, <coughs> maybe if we'd have been seeing each other every other weekend, it would have gone on longer, you know, because we weren't really seeing our full selves, but COVID came and um, things started to go wrong. Um, after a couple of months really, um, couldn't really do anything right. Um, what turned from like, oh, you're so beautiful and, you know, and you, you know, have you been a model and whatever else had turned to, I couldn't do anything right. And it was... Did you feel like you were love-bombed and then he took it all away? Yeah. And obviously the pressure cooker of... Moving in with someone during a pandemic starts bringing up all these things from all these triggers, probably, which probably is a good thing that it was brought to light sooner because you might yeah. not realize absolutely seen him, you know, casual weekends. Yeah, it would have gone on for a lot longer, you know. You don't see the real them, do you? You know, it's all surface level, and um, I'm, I'm falling in love with him, and I'm um but he can't tell me he loves me because he doesn't do that. And, you know, um, but nothing I was doing was right. Um, it ended that I didn't drive my car right, didn't start the pots right, couldn't open the door handle right. Um, and I'm becoming clingy because I think I'm going to lose him. And um, I'm becoming, like, desperate, I guess, you know. And it went on for about a year, really. And um, in the end... He, it, he knew these people. Um, it brought up all the triggers, all the memories were coming back constantly more than ever. And I didn't realise this is like post-traumatic stress disorder. I was reliving all this shit that had happened to me when I was 13. And my emotions were beginning to feel like the same as well on that level of worthlessness. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I was hoping this was going to be a really nice love story and um, 
I'm feeling that way again by people from where I live. I'm being pushed down again. And then he said once that he wanted to put on his Facebook page, he had a lot of people following him, that he knew some were racist. And I thought, you're not telling my story. I need to tell my story. I don't want anybody, and I, I didn't want to tell it. And so I didn't want anybody else to tell it. And um, I wasn't, you know, I'll hold my hands up. I wasn't, you know, I was becoming very insecure. And I was getting so insecure by the whole situation and the triggering thoughts and the memories of everything that I was becoming, yeah, clingy and probably. And then he said to me, you know, I thought you were so strong at the beginning, but you're not, you're weak. And that really riled me. Um, and then he said something about my son not ringing me enough from Vietnam. And I just thought it's gone from me to my kids now and I can't have that and I went mad when he mentioned my son the protection thing came out again and he left and he blocked me and um that was it yeah blocked me good job you kicked into the curb that's all I'm going to say on that I was so sad though I was devastated I've never felt so sad I told him at one point that I was feeling so worthless that I wanted I'd thought about taking myself down to the railway lines, you know, not far, and just walking out in front of a train. And the more I thought about it, the more excited I felt inside. And I thought, I can't be thinking this way. And then he told my daughter, and her dad had only died the year before. So it was, I didn't want her to know these feelings because she hadn't caused this. But I felt like this constant, I couldn't do anything right, was dragging me down. And I just thought, no. And then my mum decides to move from down here near me, back up north. And he'd say to me, do you think it's because of the way you are and the way, you know, I just felt like everything was coming in on me and my mum was moving because of me. And, you know, did these things happen to you because you were scruffy when you were younger and... I just thought, oh, this is so wrong. He's, the story's being changed here and I'm being labelled again and it isn't true. And I went mad. So when he was blocking me, then I'd get unblocked and then I'd get blocked again. And then he said he told all his mates, you know, that. But every time he talked to his mates, I was just thinking anyway, well, somebody's going to tell you sooner or later, aren't they? And you'll you'll finish with me anyway. So yeah, he knew it all. And that was the first time I told somebody at the beginning of a relationship instead of the end. And that didn't impact well either. So I just thought I'm done for me. And I just had to, he went, he wouldn't speak to me. So then I'm wrapped with all the shame and guilt again. And, and then I got angry. And I spoke to my friend, my best friend from school, and he said to me, what's the matter, Donna? And I said, so unhappy, Neil. And I told him, and I went, I never knew all this about you, Donna. I didn't know. He said, I'd heard something. I said, but just brushed it off because that wasn't you. He said, he said Donna, this isn't you. And I didn't know what was right and wrong at the end of this relationship. I just thought I was absolutely worthless again and a piece of shit. So I'm down there again. 
and he said, Donna, you know, and I said, look, Neil, I've got something, this happened to me and that happened. But I didn't know, I didn't know. And that, and then I started to find these people on Facebook and I started to look them up and I started to get numbers and I started rung that girl, the one that had been my friend, because, do you know, that hurt more than the perpetrators, the male ones, because she'd been my mate. She had been my mate and she turned like that on me and I couldn't believe it. And, and I how many years, sorry, how many years later was this? This is 40, 40 years, 40 years. 40 years later. 40 years, yeah. So and this it, is three years ago. And it was like a pressure cooker all coming out of me. Did and you I feel went, like you needed to confront it head on? And yeah. It was enough of hiding from it, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't have stopped it if I'd wanted to. I was messaging these people on Facebook. I rung her and called her a C-U-N-T 25 times in the night when I finally found her on Facebook. And I know it's awful, you know, I told the police as well. But then she went down the police station and that's when it all opened up to complain about me. And I just said, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'll tell you why. And, um, and that's when they listened and my life changed. Somebody listened to me because I thought, I can't tell this story because it's so bizarre, so outrageous. It's just nobody's going to believe me. Yeah, when I hear other people's stories, it's not. And I can see them as well. So listening to the most tragic and compelling stories gives space for somebody else and shines a light for somebody else to come forward and go, yeah, I'm one of them as well. Because I thought when people know, I could, I've seen people back off. I've seen people not want to know what's happened to me. That's been the saddest bit, that I've been truthful. But you know what? Now you can judge me on the actual me, not the lies. And if you don't like me now, that's great because I'm me now. Did the main ever get? Did they ever get prosecuted in the end? Still going through it. Still ongoing, yeah. so we can't discuss. All too right, much. okay, sure. It, yeah. It, so yeah I rung the police, and they listened, and um, that was when I started to go on video calls, uh, videos with them, uh, interviews, and this is. Now they've started to arrest the perpetrators, but the, not arrest, bring them in. And but they're all saying it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Your story brings, you know, sex, sexual assaults uh, out of the darkness. I think it's quite taboo still for some women to feel like they can talk about yeah. um, because they feel shame, even though they shouldn't. And I think your story would is going to help a lot of girls that have gone through this. And inspire people because that's why we do what we do. Myself and Victoria is um, I'm purely, you know, dedicating my, my podcast life to survivors now because I feel like they need a voice and yeah. a voice like yourself. They need, you know, and I find it it's therapeutic to come on and tell your story. And it's uh, you were saying you felt like a weight has been lifted as soon as you've opened up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As soon as, you know, and it, it could have been anybody, but with it being the police, it's almost like, wow, they're, they're actually listening. They've not put the phone down and said, what the hell? You know, we've got a nutter here. So I was like, wow. So the interviews, which were incredibly painful, were also therapeutic in themselves. Because you, I, I know I've been looked at and examined over and over again in interviews to see if this, because there is no evidence. 
So the evidences on what I've come forward with, my video evidence, my doctor's notes for what they're worth, you know, when I first went there, and the partners, the ex-partners I've told the same story to along the line. Um, whatever happens now, not bothered. Not bothered. But I do know I needed to clear my name. That was, you know, the name clearing for me is the most important thing because I, I wasn't what they said. You know? I, think you're, I think you've done incredibly well, you know. You've, I feel that, honestly. Yeah. Ever since, it's been like a, a change overnight, overnight. And it's made people level up around me. You know, once you start to tell, I put it off, I hate Facebook, but I thought I'm going to use it for my benefit now. So I've tapped it all out. And that's how most of my family found out. I put it on there. Thought, yeah, just judge me now. This is me and this is what I am. And that's not what I was. And if, you know, please, you know, say hello to me. You were a child. You were yeah. a child. You know, don't feel embarrassed about it as well or being around me. You know, if you see in the street, please let on because I'm not, I'm here to let people be themselves, be free, not be tied down by some kind of labelling or some terrible thing that happened to them. You know, I've still got loads of time left to do things. And that's when I decided, right, I'm going to go down the hypnotherapy route, already do a curing job. But absolutely, that has been mind-blowing. And I had it years ago, and it worked so well on me that I procrastinated for the past 15 years, and I've gone, right, this is the time now to go. And put it out there, and it helps so many people because it just works so well. You know, going over stories and upsetting yourself it's instant, you know, you get into the subconscious, you can change people's mindset. It's so empowering. And that's what I want to do. And so you're, you're training with that at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Went to a brilliant guy, Chris Flea in um, Painton, training. I've done a full year nearly of it. We've got our exams next month. But I'm doing my case studies and I want to go forward and trauma will be my main thing, my main niche I want to go down so good for kids well you done know, kids well done. you know there's so many kids going out there and if you can get them while they're young and these things have happened you can put them out there and you know it changes lives when people are healed you know hurt people hurt people and i don't want it to be like that i want good people to pass that good thing on you know whatever's happened i still see a beautiful world and and that's the main thing you know and it's so good that you've turned such a negative experience into such a positive. That's real inspiration. Yeah, it's like a purpose. You, I kind of, you have to make your way back because you're thinking, wow, this, this is absolutely outrageous and awful. But once you see the pattern, you realise you've got that thing, you've got that purpose, you've got to use it. There's no other way you can do it. You've got to use, use it to help people. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And my daughter will say like mom you're so happy when you get up it's like being reborn again it really is you know i hate being like airy fairy with it but it's so true you know well, you're glowing anyway you look great i feel it i feel yeah. really good and I, I feel like you know nothing's going to change that yeah nothing at and all you honestly you've been such a brilliant speaker today donna and that's all right we have the discussion before you came on I, I came away from our conversation with such positive energy 
from Good. from just our phone conversation so whatever you do in hypnotherapy i'm so sure you're going to be really successful yeah. um so thank you so much for coming on today now do you want people to contact you and if so where can they find you yeah you can find me i've just made a little page um and i want to empower women children whoever just to you know be themselves and live the life that they deserve um so you can find me i've just set up a little facebook page it's called uh, fast track therapy with donna and uh, i'm going to have one on instagram as well oh brilliant, brilliant. and so yeah. yeah viewers if they want to head over and hit up John Donna. Her links will be in the description box below this video. And if you want to pester Victoria, <laughs> the link to it, I think you said your Instagram link we put in your description box, isn't it? That's yeah. all I have at the moment. So when Victoria finally sets up more socials, you can contact her um, everywhere, but until then, Instagram. And <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you, Donna, for today. Honestly. Oh, thank you. You know, thank you so much. You've been great. You've been great. <clears throat> right. Thank you. Thank you for letting me tell my thank story. Good thank luck. you for doing that as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.